From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We continue our exploration of emerging treatments for mental health challenges. Today, promising help for people with obsessive compulsive disorder. It was just this chronic thought of, man, I wish this would stop. I wish I could be free from my this prison of my mind. We'll talk with the doctor trapped by symptoms of OCD about a treatment that's gaining momentum and how that same treatment might also work for addiction. Then babies and those who birth them are dying in record numbers in Colorado, especially those of color. 40% of Colorado is considered a maternity care desert, which means they don't have obstetrical services, birthing centers, okay, nothing. We'll talk solutions within the healthcare system and beyond. We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Anxiety and depression have been on the rise for a while now, but the number of people seeking treatment grew during the pandemic. We've been exploring emerging treatments for mental health, including the use of psychedelics like MDMA as well as transcranial magnetic stimulation for anxiety and depression. Today, we talk about a treatment that's shown great promise for many people suffering with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Later, we'll, talk how it, we'll talk, discuss how it's being studied for youth with addiction therapy. Moksha Patel is a physician at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, who himself was treated there for OCD. Dr. Rachel Davis is his psychiatrist who oversaw the treatment and directs the OCD program. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to talk about this treatment in a moment, but first, Dr. Patel, can you tell us about your symptoms? Yeah, so I first began having symptoms of OCD when I was four or five years of age, though we didn't know what it was until much later. Um, the symptoms were characterized as with obsessions, which are repetitive, intrusive, and unwanted thoughts. These thoughts could be about anything, from contamination to fear of hurting a loved one, um, and the thoughts would cause immense distress or anxiety. And in an attempt to reduce that anxiety, patients like myself will perform rituals or compulsions. Um, the most extreme of my symptoms were using cleaning products like bleach, uh, Lysol, etc., on my skin and hands, and not using any restroom without showering for about an hour which, as you can imagine, makes living a practical life very difficult. Mm, and also, Colorado has such a dry climate. So I'm sure that was not helpful to your skin. No, not at all. Well, when did these issues start for you? Yeah, so I first began having symptoms of OCD in hindsight at about four or five years of age. Um, but it was about high school when, funnily enough, we were watching the television show Monk which is about an obsessive compulsive uh, detective. Mm -hmm. um, and we realized some similarities, so we went to our pediatrician who quickly diagnosed me and was put into care um, at that point. 
Now, can you talk about how this may have kept you from doing things that you like to do? Absolutely. Um, I think there's kind of two big aspects to that. The first is the practical aspects. Not being able to be far away from your own bathroom because that's the only bathroom you use makes traveling really difficult. So I missed mm. many, yeah, missed many family weddings, missed many uh, field trips, you know, overnight camping trips, etc. Um, so there was that practical aspect. But then just on a day-to-day basis, I was always trapped inside my head. Mm. Always worried about the next obsession. Always worried about how do I get rid of this anxiety? How do I uh, fight it? And that fear kept me from really ever being fully engaged in life. Yeah. Now, what treatments did you try? Oh, great question. Um, I've tried many, many treatments since uh, when I was officially diagnosed in 2007. Uh, At last count, I think I've tried 12 classes of medications. Um, So more than 12 medications, numerous forms of therapy, uh, exposure response prevention therapy, which Dr. Davis is an expert in, but is um, where you kind of challenge yourself by facing your phobia or fear and then avoid the compulsion by not washing your hands after touching a bathroom door, for example. Mm. Um, I've done psychodynamic therapy, which is kind of what people think of as more traditional Freudian uh, therapy. Uh, I've done yoga retreats. I've done mindfulness uh, wow. meditation. You name it, I've tried it, but uh, had limited effects with most of those treatments. And you had seen 13 plus professionals in three cities? Yes, yes. Uh, Sacramento, Chicago, and Denver, 13 plus professionals, including psychologists, psychiatrists, so licensed social workers. Um, you name it, I'd kind of run the gamut of trying whatever I could to get this disease under control. And it wasn't until this new treatment with the DBS that I really started seeing some hope. Well, perfect segue. Let's, Dr. Davis, let's bring you into the conversation. Um, It's called Deep Brain Stimulation or DBS. Correct. Um, Can you describe in layperson's terms how this treatment works? Well, we don't actually know exactly how it works, but I can describe what it is. So uh, the neurosurgeon implants electrodes in the deeper structures of the brain, and um, these electrodes are connected to extension wires, which are connected to pulse generators in the chest, which look very much like um, pacemakers. And um, Mm. the uh, clinician uses a tablet to set the settings in the um, DBS, and uh, it provides a a constant um, dose of electricity, which, um, like I said, we don't exactly understand how it works, but we know that it modulates brain circuits, and it probably helps correct um, connections in the brain that are abnormal in OCD. And this treatment can be done awake or asleep? Correct. So um, the the treatment can be done awake uh, because the brain doesn't actually sense uh, physical pain. And um, when neurosurgeons choose to do it that way, they use a local anesthetic for the scalp. And um, one of the benefits of doing it awake is that you can do interoperative testing. So you can turn on stimulation, um, which can help you know if you're in the right location. So if you're in the right location, what you hope to get is um, improved mood, increased energy and reduced anxiety, which has been shown to later uh, correlate with reduction in OCD symptoms. Or um, it can be done asleep, which is what um, Dr. Patel had in his case um, under uh, MRI or CT guidance to uh, confirm location. Well, a lot of people might think they have OCD. 
What's the clinical definition and how common is it? Right. That's a that's a really good question because a lot of people kind of throw out the term, I'm so OCD, casually as if it's funny or kind of cute. And um, OCD, true OCD is really uh, debilitating and leads to significant suffering. So about 2 to 3% of the um, United States population has OCD. And it um, involves obsessions, which Moksha described, which are intrusive thoughts, thoughts that are not in line with your values or um, sense of meaning in life um, that are very disturbing. And then people attempt to alleviate the anxiety caused by these obsessions or attempt to prevent something bad from happening by doing compulsions. And compulsions can be physical behaviors or it can be mental actions such as um, repeating, counting, reviewing, um, trying to figure out, things like that. And it has to, uh, per the formal definition, has to occupy at least an hour of the day or cause significant distress. Most people with OCD, it, it is um, not in a discrete period. It, it you know occupies most of their day throughout the day. Chloe, nothing to be taken lightly. No, not at all. It's now, I understand deep brain stimulation was not initially used for OCD. When did the treatment first come about? Well, it was first used for uh, Parkinson's disease, and that's actually what it's most commonly used for um, in the 1990s. And um, it was first used experimentally for OCD in 1999, but it received the FDA approval for a, uh, under what's called a humanitarian uh, device exemption in 2009. So it's been used for OCD um, since 2009. Dr. Patel, you tried after years of other therapy. When did you begin to feel relief? Yeah, so um, I got this surgery. It was a two-part surgery. The first part I got on September 15th last year. I remember it very clearly. Um, and then the second part where they put the pulse generators in was uh, five days later on the 22nd. We had to wait about a month before we started programming as the electrodes started fitting in. And on my second, first and second day of programming, I started noticing, the first day I noticed a little improvement, but by that second day, I felt significantly better than I had felt in decades. Wow. Now, there's also a device that helps you control the amount of stimulation. So do you control that? Uh, yes and no. So Dr. Davis can control through thousands of settings. Um, she can change numerous different parameters of the settings. And then she can give me control over which of those settings I can control. So for me right now, um, I have a, uh, a sleep setting, which is kind of calmer, lower voltage. Mm. Um, and so it helps me sleep a little bit better. And then my awake setting, which is a little bit higher voltage, but my mood is a little bit better. I'm a little bit more energized. Um, and so I usually toggle between those two. But Dr. Davis has kind of master mastery over all of the settings. <laughs> now, you've had the surgery well over a year ago. Yeah. And how has it changed your behavior and your day-to-day -day life? You know, it's funny you say that because just yesterday I was thinking, I was having what I call a new bad day. Mm. Um, just kind of a bad day, not, nothing horrible. Mm -hmm. And I was just comparing it to my pre-surgery bad days. And I'm so blessed <laughs> at how much better days are now. So your bad days are better. <laughs> my bad days now are a hundred times better than my bad days before. And I just feel like I was previously stuck in this prison in my mind. And those walls have started to melt down. I can see the world. Instead of trying to see the world in black and white, I can appreciate the colors mm -hmm. and really just enjoy life a lot more, be engaged. 
And so now I have good days and bad days like most people. Mm-hmm. But instead of feeling constantly as a prisoner chained to my thoughts and fears, I can now be a little bit more engaged in life and have more control over my mind. And it's just it's just so amazing. I can I am so thankful. What's an example of something you couldn't do before that now you can do? Oh, okay. Lots of things. So the most liberating thing for me has been before I literally would not use the bathroom without showering for most of the time. Now I use the bathroom numerous times a day without showering, just wash my hands like most people do. Mm -hmm. And that has opened up so many possibilities. It's allowed me to travel. I was able wow. to see my grandma for the first time in 10 years in London. Wow. Because I couldn't use airplane restrooms. Wow. And so I couldn't travel, but now I can. Um, I can eat and drink freely. Before, in order to avoid using the restroom, I would just restrict what I would eat or drink. But now I go to work, and if I'm craving a chai chiller, which is this really cool drink at Dasbog, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, I can go have a chai chiller. And so it's just, it's very liberating to just be able to eat and drink and use the restroom and travel and see my grandma. Wow. Chai chiller. I'm going to have to try that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the tip. Yeah. So Dr. Davis, how many of your patients have benefited from the surgery? And do you have any sense of how long lasting the benefits are? Well, we we use it rarely because it is a treatment um, we kind of use as a last resort since it's invasive and it's brain surgery. So at um, CU or UC Health, we've done about one surgery per year. So Moksha, you were number eight. eight? Yeah. So um, I've had eight patients who've had surgery here. And then I have several other patients that I do the programming for who've had surgery elsewhere. And Um, About 75% of my patients have had what we call a good response, which is at least a 35% reduction in symptoms. And that may not sound like a huge amount, but it it really can um, lead to significant improvement in life. So it could mean someone going from spending, you know, 12 to 13 hours per day on their OCD down and not being able to leave the house to maybe spending six hours per day with Mm. OCD symptoms, but being able to go to school with support. And so it's not a cure. Um, You know, Dr. Patel can talk about, you know, still having some residual symptoms, but it can um, and has greatly improved um, people's quality of life. And most notice improvement in mood right away, but for some it takes weeks or months. Right. So most notice improvement in mood um, pretty quickly. And then for most, the improvement in OCD symptoms takes weeks to months. Um, some people have a, a quicker quicker response, but it can take uh, quite a long time. Now, I know insurance paid for Dr. Patel's treatment. And although I understand it took a long time to right. get approval, but a lot of insurers won't. And that's clearly a roadblock, roadblock for patients. Um What can you tell us about how accessible this treatment is right now for those who might benefit from it? Accessibility is definitely an issue, and and there's several reasons for that. I'd say the main one is insurance coverage. So uh, payers like Medicare uh, tend to cover it if if, um, medical necessity can be demonstrated. But the private insurers are, um, they still often declare it, investigational and experimental, even though it has FDA approval. And um, so this is something that uh, my colleagues and I are working on with um, various insurers to try to get them to review their medical necessity criteria. And uh, Moksha's um, insurance was actually the first uh, major 
insurer to change their policies to deem DBS for OCD medically necessary when specific criteria were met. And, and then the other problem with accessibility is that, um, you know, there's only a few centers in the nation that offer, actually in the world, that offer this treatment for OCD. And, and it really needs to be done at a specialized center. Um, and so it, it can be hard for patients who don't live close to a center to easily access this treatment option. Now, Dr. Davis, I've read this could be helpful for depression and other mental health issues. And after the break, we'll talk about its potential to benefit those suffering with addiction. But how effective is it for depression and and anxiety? So interestingly, it's probably been studied the most in depression, but depression doesn't yet have FDA approval. And the reason for that is the initial larger randomized controlled trials have mixed results. Um, Now, there's probably a lot of reasons for the mixed results, which we probably don't have time to get into today. Um, But uh, newer research suggests that rather than looking at the anatomical location in the brain, if you look at targeting the specific white matter tracts, that you get better results. And so um, hopefully on the near horizon, it will be approved for depression. Now, in my patients with OCD, I have certainly seen reduction in depression um, in every one of my patients who has had it. So I am very hopeful that, um, you know, it will ultimately be shown to be effective for depression and receive FDA approval. Thanks to you both for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Dr. Moksha Patel is a physician at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. He underwent a treatment known as deep brain stimulation for obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD. Dr. Rachel Davis is an associate professor of psychiatry at the CU School of Medicine and medical director of the OCD program. When we come back, can deep brain stimulation help with addiction? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Throw a dart at a map of the American West, chances are a Chinese community once lived there. So writes author Tiao Lim Gong. We've chosen her shimmering new book, Western Journeys, for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. The Chinese have actually ended up in many small rural places. Either there was a mine or they were trying to build a railroad spur. Get a copy and meet the author in a virtual event February 23rd. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. We've been talking about a treatment called deep brain stimulation, or DBS, for obsessive compulsive disorder, also known as OCD. It involves surgically implanting electrodes in the brain, which deliver electric signals to specific areas. Before the break, we spoke with a doctor who struggled with OCD, who underwent the surgery more than a year ago and is still feeling the benefits. Now let's hear from a researcher who is studying the effects of that same surgery on people addicted to methamphetamine. Dr. Joseph Sakai is a psychiatrist who specializes in addiction at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Doctor, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, what prompted you to look into this kind of treatment specifically for methamphetamine addiction? Well, uh, currently we don't have perfect treatments in terms of addiction. And for methamphetamine use disorder, which is really a major public health problem, uh, we have some treatments that are useful in terms of psychosocial treatments, but we have no medications that are FDA approved. Um, And that's not for lack of trying. There have been many, many trials to really find something that is more helpful. 
And so really to try to push the needle um, and to uh, really work toward treatments that have higher effect size, we, we're, we're pursuing these, these new um, alternatives to see if they potentially might be helpful. Now, with opioids, there are medications to help reduce the cravings like Suboxone. Are there medications to help people stop using methamphetamine? Well, so, so currently, um, you know, the benchmark of FDA approval, uh, we don't have any medications that have met that benchmark yet. We do have um, some recent studies that show some promise in terms of maybe helping folks to reduce their use or to reduce craving, mm-hmm. um, but the outcomes are pretty modest. Uh, so even with the medication trials that have been done recently that show some promise, um, again, the effects are, are relatively modest. Now, we hear a lot about overdoses and overdose deaths from opioid use, and many people use opioids in combination with meth. How common is it for people to overdose on meth, and how often is that fatal? Well, so unfortunately, we have seen increases in the rates of individuals showing up in the emergency room, in the rates of individuals overdosing uh, who have methamphetamine use disorder. And, you know, for individuals who use methamphetamine, in some instances, there is adulteration that happens where folks add things in and individuals are unaware uh, that that has been added in. Uh, With fentanyl sort of moving in here uh, more and more so, I think the dangers are just increasing for folks. And so, you know, just sort of looking at the broader uh, issue of addiction, I think opioids are, are clearly recognized as a public health concern and there's a lot of media attention. I do worry at times that methamphetamine, which is really destructive to a lot of people, um, doesn't get as much attention. And my understanding is that it's an extremely powerful addiction. Well, I, you know, addiction in and of itself, when, when, when you get to that point, there is a diminished capacity to control one's use. Um, and so, you know, uh, the, the addiction to any substance, especially when it is severe, Um, can really push a person toward continued use of that drug in ways that doesn't necessarily align with their own values, right? That the the drug itself becomes a driver and pushes that person toward the use of that drug, sometimes in ways that um, hurt important relationships, that destroy sort of future goals. It can be incredibly tragic. Now, can you talk about methamphetamine and the challenges people have getting off of them? Sure. I, you know, I think, again, um, w- w- there are many people who have recovered um, and have long-term abstinence from methamphetamine, but our available treatments are modest. And unfortunately, for example, even for folks going through residential care, if you follow individuals out, you know, at a year, um, there's very high relapse rates. So in some studies, you know, in 70 to 80% relapsing. And retention and treatment and some treatments, you know, um, Uh, it it becomes difficult and challenging. So before the break, we heard about the surgery, which includes implanting electrodes in the brain. How do you theorize that it could also help reduce cravings for meth? Right. So so the sort of neurobiology related to addiction is complex, but there, you know, the, the reward circuitry in the brain is fundamentally involved. All substances of abuse uh, trigger this huge release uh, within the nucleus accumbens of dopamine, which is felt as reinforcing and also is important for learning um, and sort of that learning of the, the drug is associated with this reward. 
You received, been, oh, oh, I'm sorry. sorry. I was just going to say that in terms of thinking about DBS, um, there have been a number of animal studies, essentially um, placing electrodes into that region of the brain and stimulating and showing uh, reduction in use or that um, that uh, the, the mice or, or rats are, are harder to sort of reinstate to using the drug. And then there have actually been um, three case reports uh, in humans of individuals with methamphetamine use disorder being treated with DBS and two of them having long-term abstinence. Now, you received a grant from the National Institute of Drug Abuse to research this therapy for people addicted to meth. Now, the trial is pretty small, and then you'll expand depending on your findings. What kind of results would prompt you to research further? Right. So we, we, we do have this grant from uh, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And essentially, we will uh, run a very small study uh, of five individuals um, who have treatment refractory methamphetamine use disorder and are really severely affected. Um, this should really be sort of the end of the line um, and understanding that it's experimental and we don't know if it will work and that there are risks involved. This is, this is brain surgery. We, we really want to test feasibility, safety, and then have a signal to see if there are outcomes here that suggest that the treatment is actually helpful. And so it's a year-long study for those five individuals. Half of the time, they will have stimulation on. Half of the time, they will have stimulation off. They will get other treatment as well. And we'll be able to, to get a window into, uh, is there some signal uh, or some indication there may be an effect? And if there is, uh, then immediately, and this would be determined in part through, through NIDA as well, we would move into the second phase of the study where we would have 20 individuals in a randomized controlled trial to really um, elucidate those effects uh, in a well-designed study. Now, is there any indication that deep brain stimulation might help with other addiction? Yes. So um, there have been uh, case series looking at alcohol use disorder um, done in Europe. Uh, there have been a number of case reports looking at opioids. And uh, the National Institute on Drug Abuse also funded a study a few years ago that is just um, now wrapping up their first phase, looking at opioid use disorder in West Virginia. And they have done DBS for four patients, um, and they've had uh, good results for, uh, for a couple of those individuals with, with long-term abstinence. Are you concerned at all about any negative effects from the treatment? Absolutely, yes. So I think the most important thing for us is to really determine if there are any concerns regarding safety. It's, you know, this is a, uh, a procedure that is done uh, fairly routinely at the hospital uh, for Parkinson's. Um, there's a lot known about it. Um, it's, it's, it. The procedure itself is not experimental, um, but the population is. And doing DBS um, in patients with addiction, there's a relatively small number of people worldwide who, who have undergone this. So really to us, one of the most important things is to really understand, are there added risks to individuals um, to doing this procedure here? And is there going to be any effect, safety, and effect. Dr. Sakai, thanks so much. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Dr. Joseph Sakai is a psychiatrist who specializes in addiction at the CU School of Medicine on the Anschutz Medical Campus. When we come back, why black babies are dying and the people who birth them at high rates in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Fixing an entire education system isn't simple. 
it's like, oh, it's not equity, it's CRT. And it's like, do you even know what is CRT? They can't tell you a thing, but they can tell you that it's racist. I'm Joe Erickson, and Systemic from Colorado Public Radio is back for season two, asking hard questions about the American education system. Systemic returns January 10th on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Despite some notable and well-documented strides our state has made in recent years in terms of public health, a significant health disparity persists here in Colorado. Babies of color, particularly Black babies and the Black people who give birth to them, continue to die at higher rates than white and Asian Pacific Islanders. My daughter's story is loud, colorful, and artful. She was awake, aware, and active. And yet she still died. After she gave birth, Shimani was complaining that she had really sharp chest pains. The ambulance came. I'm telling them the symptoms. Is she on drugs? Next set of people come in. Is she on drugs? They kept asking her mother, is she on any drugs? I'm like, do y'all talk? We waited a solid 12 hours. She's gone. That's a little bit of the Sundance Film Festival-winning documentary Aftershock, which covers this issue of Black maternal infant mortality. The topic is the focus of two upcoming events here in Colorado, including a free screening of that film. To talk about it, we're joined by Dr. Sheila Davis, a medical doctor who until recently served as the director of the Colorado Office of Health Equity. We're also joined by Velveta Golightly Howell, board chair and CEO of Sister to Sister, International Network of Professional African American Women, Inc., a Black women's advocacy organization based in Denver that is hosting both events in an effort to raise awareness. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Dr. Davis, according to the Colorado News Collaborative, a nonprofit statewide media resource hub, The state's progress in recent years on racial and ethnic inequities shows that the gap between non-Hispanic Black and non-Hispanic White infant mortality rates has narrowed more quickly in Colorado than nationally, including in health. But still, a disproportionate number of Black babies and Black birthing people are dying. Tell us more about that. So let me set the table for you around this issue. I'm going to speak nationally. We're going to look nationally, and then we're going to focus on Colorado. Black birthing people in the United States are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes as white birthing people. Black infants are more than twice as likely to die as white babies. So that's the national picture. And then looking at the state of Colorado, the Colorado Department of Public Health and the Environment is about to release a report on 20-year trends in health inequities, which will include data on maternal mortality and infant mortality. And 20 years ago, African-American infant mortality was around 16 per 1,000 live births. And so 16, to put that in perspective, is on par with what we see in developing nations. And that Mm. was the situation in Colorado. But fortunately, we are moving in the right direction. And it is currently between 9 and 10, which is incredible that we have made that progress. But we still see these significant gaps in infant mortality. So what are some of the factors that are contributing to these deaths? Let's start with the infants. 
Some of the leading causes of infant mortality include congenital defects, low birth weight, um, prematurity, sudden infant death syndromes. These are some of the causes. But when we think about disparities, we really have to look at the continuum. Um, we have to think about what causes or what contributes to our health. What are the drivers of health? And so we traditionally think about what happens within the healthcare system. So we need to have access to healthcare. Um, we need quality healthcare. We need culturally responsive healthcare. So these are the things that need to happen within the healthcare system. And in Colorado, we also have what we're calling maternity care deserts. And 40% of Colorado is considered a maternity care desert, which means they don't have obstetrical services, birthing centers, okay, nothing. So you need access, all right. And then you need access to quality care. And I define quality care, particularly in the area of maternal and infant health, as interdisciplinary care. So you might need, you know, an obstetrician. You might need a perinatologist. So a specialist. A specialist who mm -hmm. specializes in treating high-risk pregnancies. A nutritionist, a behavioral health specialist, a doula. You know, all of these make up a team, and you need that when you're dealing with African-American maternal and infant mortality. You need those teams because the data suggests that those interdisciplinary teams make a difference. So, and you also need providers that have lived experiences that are similar to the patients they serve. Hmm. And we see that that also makes a difference. Okay, so these are all factors that contribute to infant health that are within the healthcare system. But let's zoom out. Because when we look at drivers of health, we also have to think about housing. We have to think about access to clean air and clean water. We have to consider access to healthy food. And there's also been a lot of studies that show down to the zip code. Yes. That is a big predictor of your health outcome. I'm so glad that you brought that up, Chandra, because the data, the public health data, is now pointing to the fact that our zip codes are much greater predictors of our health outcomes than our genetic codes. And mm. that wasn't the case when I was a medical student. And our zip codes, you know, where we tend to grow up and where we live tends to be influenced by policies, and policies have been, you know, racially biased. And so that's why we see these disparities. Well, getting down to the actual medical conditions, what are some of the challenges these people are facing in pregnancy with specific conditions? Birthing people of color tend to have higher rates of hypertension. They tend to suffer from obesity. They tend to suffer from lung disease. And all of these chronic conditions put you at a higher risk for a poor birth outcome. So those are conditions that people of color are experiencing at higher rates than the overall population. The state health department has said racism is one big factor in all of this. And I'm pretty sure there are some people going, how are those two connected to this? Can you kind of explain the thought process on that ideology? Yes. Another great question. So there is a growing body of evidence that links toxic psychological stress caused by 
institutional racism, structural racism, interpersonal racism, and poorer birth outcomes. And I'm going to describe a, a study of African immigrants coming to the United States, giving birth. They are not suffering from these higher rates of maternal uh, mortality or infant mortality. So you're saying birthing people from other countries slash continents exactly. are not experiencing the same as, say, African-Americans in America. Yes. But two generations later, you see these disparities wow. because it's the lived experience of being African-American in the United States that is toxic. Hmm. Wow. So, Velva, let's bring you into the conversation. Your organization, Sister to Sister, is hosting not one but two events to raise awareness about this issue in Colorado. We'll talk more about these events in a moment, but there are a lot of issues to explore in terms of public health challenges in, say, the Black community. Why was this issue so important to highlight? We have members who've actually had experiences with childbirth, and we have seen that the quality of medical care makes a big difference. We have also seen that it does not matter your educational level. It does not matter how much money you have in the bank. It does not matter your professional status these odds of you experiencing problems in childbirth are much greater than are other populations of women, particularly Caucasian women. And so that is why we have decided to focus on it, because to us, our children are the future. And we are the future because we develop our children. If we're not here to do that, either because we have passed away or because we are so sick that we cannot care for our children properly, then our opportunity to live quality lives, which are an innate benefit and privilege that we all have based on the U.S. Constitution, if you were to look at the preamble. So that is why we decided that we had to bring attention to this critical matter. And we had noticed that no other organization in the state had focused on it to raise awareness among Coloradans. Velvita Golightly Howell is the CEO of Sister to Sister, International Network of Professional African American Women, Inc., a Black women's advocacy organization based in Denver. Dr. Sheila Davis is the former director of the Colorado Office of Health Equity. When we come back, we'll talk about solutions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. One of the country's first rodeos took place in 1869 in Deer Trail, Colorado. Today, top rodeo prizes can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Back then, the winner won a new set of clothes. To start every year, cowboys and girls compete at the National Western Stock Show in Denver. Later in the year, weekly competitions in Steamboat Springs and annual events like the Pikes Peak or Bust Rodeo 
Cattleman's Days in Gunnison, and the Greeley Stampede, which was first called the Spud Rodeo in tribute to the potato crops around town. And celebrating all things rodeo all year round is the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame in Colorado Springs for the people and animals who've made their marks in arenas around the country, like the bucking bull who threw almost every rider who tried him before retirement in 1995. His name was Bodacious. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Coble and Company. Black babies and those who birth them are dying at disproportionate rates in Colorado. The reasons are varied and starts with basic access to health care and extends far beyond that. Let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Sheila Davis, the former director of the Colorado Office of Health Equity, and Velveta Golightly Howell, who leads a black woman's advocacy organization in Denver. You're having two events. One is a screening of the documentary Aftershock, which we heard a little bit earlier, and it covers this issue of Black maternal infant mortality. You're hosting a free screening of that. Absolutely. And first of all, Chandra, I just wanted to acknowledge that, of course, we in Sister to Sister International Network of Professional African-American Women recognize that maternal mortality and morbidity is something that is a public crisis here in this country, but more so for Black women and Black children. So I wanted to acknowledge that the U.S. is third in the world in terms of the statistics of having this chronic type of problem. The event that we have scheduled for this Saturday, we are pleased to have Dr. Sheila Davis as our facilitator because after the filming, we're going to have a very interactive discussion. And we welcome anyone who would be interested in learning about this issue because it is not one that just affects the black population or black women or black children, it affects adversely our entire country and beyond the country because we're not just here in the U.S. We are everywhere. And the event coming up in February is the fundraiser, and it will be featuring Dana Bowen Matthew, who is dean of George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C., and she will be delivering the keynote, but she was previously a professor at the University of Colorado School of Law. Yes, she was. And in fact, that is where Dr. Matthew and I met because I am an alumni of the law school. And so Dr. Matthew has lived it. She has actually lived it through lived experiences and she has embedded herself in knowledge gathering on the subject for decades now. And we should also note that Dean Matthew held a joint appointment at the Colorado School of Public Health. So definitely expecting a pretty insightful message there. So, Dr. Davis, what are you hoping for in terms of these events? What, what outcomes are you hoping for? So I am very excited that we will be showing Aftershock, the documentary, because it brings attention 
to the role of African-American men as allies in the birthing process. Black women are four times more likely to die than their white counterparts with the same symptoms. Why is that? This is a growing epidemic in our community. Hundreds and thousands of men are going through this same situation. I've never lived in this house without her. You just gotta keep pushing forward. I can't let Amber be another statistic. I had a plan, I had it mapped out. If these numbers were flipped around and white women were dying at the rate that black women are dying, it would be a national crisis. We fight against maternal morbidity event by event in order to create change. We can turn our pain into power and make something. There have been several documentaries on the experiences of, of women, but we haven't heard the stories of African-American men. That is one of the themes of Aftershock. And it lifts up the issue of allyship, male allyship. And so I'm excited about that. I am also excited to bring Dean Matthew back to Colorado for her to discuss her books, several books, because she talks about this notion of the zip code being a predictor of health, um, a greater predictor of health than genetic code. And she talks about her family. I think it'll be just a, a you know, an, a wonderful educational experience for the community. Alberto, what are you hoping those who attend these events walk away with? Well, thank you, Chandra. I have no doubt that those who attend the event will walk away with immense knowledge on the subject. I also hope that within their hearts, they will start to feel compassion for the public health crisis that Black women and Black children face and recognize that it's not just our population that is facing this public health crisis. These deaths of both the Black babies and the people who give birth to them have been described as preventable. Dr. Davis, can you please explain that and tell us what you know is being done in Colorado to help prevent more deaths? So I'm going to start with what the healthcare system can do. And then I'm going to zoom out. So we can provide interdisciplinary care, okay? And I mentioned obstetricians working with behavioral health specialists, working with doulas, working with nutritionists. We can do that. We can increase compensation for doulas. And my understanding, there is a program to bring more doulas to the birthing centers? Yes, there are efforts to bring more doulas, but the, the challenge has been compensating them. Mm. So that's, that's a challenge. And that's something that the Agency of Healthcare Policy and Finance is, is looking at. Um, we can create protocols for high-risk pregnancies. They call these obstetrical care bundles so that, you know, the perinatologists, all of the people that need to be attending high-risk births are part of the process. We know that that works. We can do a better job adopting these 
obstetrical care bundles in various healthcare systems. We can do a better job improving communication between patients and providers. This is part of the work of the Black Health Initiative, which is situated at Children's Colorado. We provide training for providers on how to speak with patients and how to engage in shared decision-making. So all of this is underway. But we also need more providers of color. We need more nurses of color, physician assistants of color, physicians of color. And so we need to create robust pathways to careers in the health professions. And we need to think outside of the box so that, for instance, there are pathways for nurse practitioners to become physicians or LPNs to become RNs and to have those pathways in place because we are suffering from a hemorrhaging of people from healthcare. And that hemorrhaging is even more severe when we think about people of color. So these are things that need to happen. And we're beginning to have that conversation, but we need to take it up a level. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you stepped down in November as the director of the Colorado Office of Health Equity to focus more on this specific issue. And one interesting fact that I did want to add is that you noted that Colorado was among the first two states in the country, along with Ohio, to even establish an office of this nature. And it was created with some special provisions to kind of protect this office. Can you tell me briefly about that? 2004 was the official launch. And the focus was on people of color. And the focus was also on Um, particular chronic conditions like HIV, AIDS, and heart disease, and cancers. While that's important, what we've learned um, in public health over the past 20 years is that, returning to the whole zip code notion, that if we want to address root causes, we have to dismantle these systems of oppression. Okay, We have to address systemic racism if we really want to move the needle on this issue. We also have to work in partnership with communities most impacted. So the public health department or healthcare systems are partners in this work with communities. This is a paradigm shift. This is the new frontier. Dr. Davis and Velveta, thanks so much to you both for joining us. Thank you for this invitation. Thank you for the opportunity. That was Dr. Sheila Davis, a medical doctor who until recently served as the director of the Colorado Office of Health Equity. We were also joined by Velveta Golightly-Howell, board chair and CEO of Sister to Sister, International Network of Professional African-American Women, Inc., a black woman's advocacy organization based in Denver. Sister to Sister is hosting a free screening of Aftershock, a Sundance award-winning documentary on this issue of Black maternal infant mortality this Saturday and a fundraising gala next month. We'll put a link with more information in the Colorado Matters podcast at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, 
And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.